What can Oregonians learn from the coronavirus outbreak at two very different facilities, a veteran's home in Lebanon and a Southeast Portland care facility that is now home to the state's largest outbreak? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, a conversation with Fedor Zarhin, a health reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live, who has broken story after story during the pandemic. We tried to answer that question and talked about the two care facilities that have become the hotspots statewide. We talked about why workers at both facilities wanted their stories to be told, the families who reached out about their loved ones, and how this pandemic has revealed the systemic problems that have long existed at these facilities, something Zarhan has chronicled for years. Here's that conversation. Fedor Zarhan, thanks so much for taking time. How are you holding up? Doing all right. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, you've been bringing us stories from nursing homes, uh, the most vulnerable folks in our state. And as a reader, I just wanted to say thank you for your reporting. Thanks for reading. You subscribe to The Oregonian. <laughs> We're here for you. No, I, I want to say also, Andrew, you know, I've been listening to your podcast. It's been, uh, it's been great to hear. I mean, not just because of the, like, the stories and the interviews, but... You know, now that also we're all not in each other's company in the in print, we're quite anonymous. So it's kind of gratifying to just to kind of listen to a podcast where you and other folks, reporters are talking. And then suddenly I can imagine how they might sound as real people to the regular public. And I mean, we try to be as self-effacing as possible mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, and now it's like, we have no reason. Well, why should we be ashamed to just show that we're also people doing real things? Right. So there's something, uh, pretty gratifying that. So awesome. It, it feels like a very long time ago that we were talking about all that we don't know about coronavirus when you were last on the podcast. We still don't know a lot, but thanks to your reporting, we know a lot more. Um, what has it been like to, you know, get information from the state about what's happening at nursing homes across Oregon? You know, it's been a very incremental process. Uh, it's like little battle after battle after battle. And the main thing is you got to choose them because there aren't that many of us, right? So you got to really figure out what you're going to go after. And then you just got to really not forget that getting that information, like, how many people have died? How many people have fallen ill in nursing homes? How many nursing homes have cases? That That's just really important. And you can't let it slide, right? Because here in Oregon, from the very beginning and before the outbreak, we've just, it's been pretty well established that if you, you know, make clear to the public that there are agencies that have this information that is ultimately, does ultimately belong to the public, and that does not actually violate in any substantial way, like patient privacy, right? Because there's no way to identify uh, individuals if, you know, say we know that there are 100 cases in nursing homes in the state. Right. Or if we know that there's 30 nursing homes with cases, especially considering there's there's a crisis. Like, you know, uh, all of the all of these considerations like ongoing epidemiological investigation or uh, patient privacy, uh, you know, they're all very fuzzy standards, right? So I think that in a crisis like this, 
it is safe to make an adjustment and say, you know, we are going to say which facilities have cases and how many. And the state has recognized that, too. But it takes numerous articles in the newspaper for the state to come around. Right. That's incredibly frustrating because you're making this argument to people at the state for weeks before, you know, they ultimately come to the decision that they're going to release all this information. Right. Just to go behind the veil. Right. I mean, basically, if basically if their concerns about patient privacy and about epidemiological investigations were so genuinely strong and rock solid, it wouldn't matter how many stories we write, they would never release it. If they genuinely would compromise people's safety and that that was the ultimate priority, then they wouldn't release it at any point. You know, no matter how many stories we write, say to say, hey, state, you need to release the private medical records of John Jones. Mm -hmm. They'd never do it. You know, it doesn't matter. Right. They're they're just not going to do it because there it's a pretty clear line. Uh, And, you know, just ultimately it's just it's just frustrating because I feel like journalists, we perform a public service, a critical public service. And this I think, you know, state and local government and reporters, we ultimately have the same goal. Right. We work on behalf of the public. We want to help the public. We want people to live and not die. We want people to be safe. We want people to know what's really going on. But our ways of doing that are the the things that we do in service of that are completely different. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we have to spend our very relatively limited resources trying to show why the state should be using its resources, that is an absolute waste of our time. Ultimately, we shouldn't be having to do that, I think. Well, the way I look at the outbreak here in Oregon, um, Fedora, is really there are two signature spots in the assisted living or nursing home community that um, down in Lebanon, the veterans home there and the uh, Foster Creek facility in southeast Portland. So maybe let's start by going back to your reporting um, down in Lebanon veterans home. That work. Sure. Um, This came on the devastating heels of the news out of Washington at the Kirkland facility there. I think tensions were kind of high regionally. I know I was worried about this stuff. What did you find when you went down to uh, to Lebanon and started reporting? So uh, the veterans home was and is in in a pretty good spot in a number of ways. I mean, one, it's owned by a state agency, right? The Oregon Department of Veterans Affairs. So if the state's got its eyes on that, that's you know, by default uh, uh, plus for the nursing home. Plus, you know, it's split up into four different buildings called neighborhoods, right? So, I mean, early on, the hope was that the cases would stay within one of the neighborhoods. That didn't play out. Um, but still, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that played some role in mitigating the spread. Uh, you know, they had some pretty concrete protocols for preventing spread in terms of access. You know, the, the, the Oregon Department of Veterans Affairs definitely did uh, help out with a number of things also eventually. Right. Um, there was some opacity there early on, but I was able to talk to some uh, caregivers who really took us in to the nursing home um, like uh, Alicia Forsyth. 
uh, young caregiver, uh, mm-hmm. hadn't been working there that long at all. And she, you know, she really shared all of, you know, all of that experience and she worked, uh, and works directly with those patients with directly with the folks with coronavirus. And, you know, she was telling me how she had to, masks were so short that basically they would take their N95 mask after leaving a room with a coronavirus resident, spray it with this disinfectant called Virex and put it in a plastic bag. And then when they need to use it again, use that again. And, you know, part of me was also like, okay, you know, that sounds kind of extreme, you know? And when I talked to like a nurse at some point, she was like, eh, you know, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, just the other day I got in response to a public records request uh, the VA's official like protocols for dealing with COVID. And literally right there, it says, you know, N95s are good for X number of shifts. They're supposed okay. to be one night, one time uses X number of shifts. Do you leave a room, spray it with Virex or Virex uh, and put it in a plastic bag? And I was like, well, there you go. Uh, so then talk to another two caregivers who are also really in the trenches who ended up actually getting sick with the coronavirus. And they were all living in one apartment Two women who did have the coronavirus who were tested negative, positive, living with two who were te- who hadn't gotten their test results yet. There was just a lot of like, what is going on? We don't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. And also not getting really that much information. How were you able to get in touch with them? How, how, how did you, uh, did they reach out to you or did you find Alicia and, and her colleagues? So that was quite the serendipitous little moment. So my habit, just as a person, really, but also as a reporter, is just chat everybody up. So I was in line at the hotel to check in, just chatting with the uh, receptionist. And the VA home is right next to the hotel. It's very close. A young woman, maybe seven, eight feet behind me, like doing some Damn Some social, social distancing. distancing. Yeah. Before social distancing was really a thing, I think this was. <laughs> As she was like, I just heard this, like this barely audible, like, I work there. I'll talk to you. And then, you know, she, she, cause she was mad. I mean, she was so mad because, uh, you know, she felt like there was no protection for her or for her colleagues. And that night she was at the hotel because she'd asked, this was like the day after the first diagnosis at the VA home. And so she had asked the company to rent her a hotel room so she didn't have to go home to be with her roommates. And so did a number of other caregivers because, you know, her roommates didn't want to get sick. She didn't want to mm-hmm. infect anybody. Right. And so we talked. Basically, I stayed there for a few days. Then I came back later and then I actually interviewed her you know, more extensively. You met her while checking into the hotel, though. Yeah, exactly. So this is the, this is a, an argument for being there, right? As a reporter, you wouldn't have gotten that contact if you weren't on the ground. It, exactly. And I mean, it, there was some trust building there right? because, you know, there was some wariness and, you know, there's a story I wrote about the lack of personal protective equipment. This is, again, this is early on in the outbreak. This is a month ago. You know, I was interviewing some commissioners who were like, yeah, you know, we're scrambling to get gowns. We are trying to scrape anything together that we can. You know, the fire department gave us a hundred masks. These people, so basically the story ran about how they were running out of personal protective equipment. And she said that like the next day they had what they needed. And so that, you know, I was able to build some trust through that. And I mean, of course she was taking a risk and knew with uh, running a story 
based on her personal experience. Um, so when you look back at the Lebanon situation, um, do you think ultimately they were, they were in a pretty good spot given that they were a state agency and looks to be a relatively new facility also. And, um, you know, they're spread out, uh, you know, it was bad, but it could have been a lot worse. I think I agree with that. When compared to what we saw at in the Southeast Portland nursing home, absolutely. Because again, at the very least, from the very beginning, there was full awareness of what was going on, going on at the veterans home. I mean, and it was early on. I mean, there was a point where the health authority had every employee who agreed to be tested, tested. I mean, they set up tents in the parking lot and everybody stood in line and got tested. You know, there was a testing clinic across this, virtually across the street, you know, I mean, and the VA knew all these reporters are looking here, you know, and so they're releasing information almost daily about how many new cases, people who've passed away, you know, there's like regular communication. It's like, we've got this, you know, we don't know what this is all going to look like ultimately, but we've got this, you know, it's a very different, very, very different environment from, you know, any of numerous companies around the country that are that are really very much driven by profit exclusively well let's take a break and we can talk a little bit more about some of the other facilities in your reporting uh, including uh, the foster creek um, nursing home in, in southeast portland So here we are more than a month into the pandemic uh, and the situation here in Oregon um, when you had really a bombshell of a story uh, coming out um, about um, 10 residents dead at the time um, at a facility in Southeast Portland. How did you learn about uh, Foster Creek and, and how long were you working on that story before uh, you were able to to publish it? So I'd heard rumblings about, hey, you know, healthcare at Foster Creek. Something's going on there. And then I got uh, like a tip saying, you know, eh, it's like you should look there. And then uh, basically through some connections of people I knew, I got in touch with like a sister-in-law of a neighbor or a roommate or something of someone I knew to caregivers who are working literally in the trenches. And the thing is that they'd been keeping track of every person who died right, of, of the coronavirus. And they had lots of different, I mean, they were literally keeping lists. And I asked both of them why they were doing it. And, you know, they felt like it was the beginning of this big historical thing. And they didn't want them to just disappear. You know, they wanted to keep a log of, like, these are the victims, you know, to, to just, like, do them some honor. Because basically after somebody dies in, in a nursing home, or at least this one, as they explained to me, like, it's as if just, it, poof, just gone. Like the next day, the roster of residents is just missing that person, period. Like the record's gone. You know, it's like, yeah. that's it, you know? And they're like, wait, but, but that was a person. So out of compassion for their patients and concern about maybe this not being covered up but not remembered, these caregivers started documenting the, the list of, of those affected. Exactly. And so then they were, and I mean, they described also dire conditions, like, you know, no personal protective equipment, not nearly enough stuff. I mean, one of the caregivers she described having a unit caring for the unit of like more than 20 people, all of them either with the coronavirus diagnosed or symptomatic by herself. Like, 
Wow. Or, you know, a nurse describing how, you know, nurses do more of a heavy lift kind of stuff, you know, like treating wounds, for example, right? Um, you know, uh, just, just doing more medical stuff that caregivers aren't allowed to do. And when there's only one caregiver for all those people, the nurse has to start doing mm-hmm. basic stuff like giving showers, you know, uh, just again, like the, the basic caregiver stuff, which means, yeah, wounds are being, aren't being clean. Like people aren't getting the total care that they need just because, you know, it can't get done when, you know, like half of the residents need help eating as it is. And then with the coronavirus, like three quarters of them need help eating. So that's like at least like 20 minutes. You go into somebody's room, you bring them their food, you help them eat, you make sure they eat. And that's for all of them. And then you got to clean up everything. And then meanwhile, there's people like, you know, dying essentially of the coronavirus with like one and a half or two people responsible for the whole thing. Right. So they wanted it out there. You know, they felt like it was worth it. So they went uh, on the record and then at like the 11th hour, essentially, uh, the state confirmed that uh, the nursing home had reported 10 deaths, right? So mm-hmm. as the caregivers described to me, you know, there were nine confirmed, one presumed, and then the next day the state released the info that there were nine confirmed deaths at the nursing home. Uh, and then there was that one presumed. Okay. So you were aware of this place. What does it look like? Can you take us there? Or have you been able to, to get close to the facility? Do you have a sense of what its accommodations are like compared to the veterans home. It is a special facility because it's got a lot of, um, uh, you know, there, it does take a lot of very challenging residents, like people with severe mental illness or criminal histories, like say with sexual abuse, you know, uh, severe dementia. It's just not, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not your happy retirement home kind of, situation, uh, at least as it's been described to me. Um, and what's sad is those are the kinds of folks, like people with behavioral issues, those are the folks who need by far the most care, you know, because for with dementia, for example, uh, behaviors come about if that's a way of communicating, right? It's like, if you are in pain physically, that will come out through your behaviors, through doing things that are, you know, maybe scary to other caregivers. Those are all expressions of uh, often physical pain, also emotional pain. Uh, And it takes a lot of attention and understanding and just time to understand that, not just in the abstract to understand it, but to actually uh, understand it well enough to help. What are the training requirements for these type of care facilities? Are they supposed to be equipped to handle something like this or something on a smaller scale? Because I read your reporting and it's, you know, not washing hands, seeing patients after that. You know, it's some of this stuff is, is mind boggling. But are, should they be trained to handle something like this? Yeah, I mean, there's you know, infection, infection control training, and that is an absolute standard part of what nursing homes do because uh, shock and awe, there's other kinds of outbreaks that can happen, you know, flu, norovirus, uh, for example, and there's regularly outbreaks. That is a normal thing. They've all got protocols. Just this is different, a different, slightly different situation, obviously. But yeah, it's definitely part of the standard kind of treatment 
at uh, nursing homes, you know, and everybody who works there, all the caregivers, they've got some amount of training, like there's certified nursing assistants and also nurses, like licensed practical nurses and registered nurses. Uh, so, you know, that is uh, medical training. So, but again, let's just keep in mind that this isn't just like if we're looking to fault somebody, right? It's not a simple equation, right? Because the, the company that manages the home, you know, in a statement, they said, look, you know, we did what we could. We started running out of personal protective equipment. Part of what we did, every we took a lot of effort you know, to get staff that. Part of our effort was asking the state, and the state did not help, basically. I'm not I'm paraphrasing, you know. But also, I mean, this was going on for a while before you know, the state evacuated 20 residents to hospitals after evaluating everybody, you know. That was like April 11th and 12th, the first death of according to my employees was that I spoke to was like March, late March, you know, but the thing is all of that is still also opaque for me. Like I'm still trying to figure out what exactly happened when, who did what, when, how, why, et cetera. Still trying to figure that out. Earlier in this conversation, Fedora, you mentioned that at the VA there were on-site testing clinics and um, the national guard had set up facilities and, you know, there was this, pretty big response has that response or a similar response happened at foster creek so april april 10th we ran the story on how there's 10 people have died at the nursing home that same day the department of human services launched this big three-day inspection then april 11th and 12th uh contractor for the state um, american medical response uh sent out a team of folks to evaluate every single resident at the home everybody Mm-hmm. For they started with those who were symptomatic, uh, who had the coronavirus, then those who were symptomatic, and then uh, those who weren't. And you know, they, they took out like 20, 20 people to local hospitals. Wow. 20 people. They're like, you know, these people need to be in a hospital, you know? Like that, that's t- to me just as, as a, just as a person, that sounds like pretty striking kind of effort. It's like, we've got 20 people here who shouldn't be here. They should be at a hospital. Fedora, when you look at these two homes we're talking about and then the, you know, what we know about other homes across the state, do you have a sense of why some facilities fare better than others? Just like with so many other things, the pandemic isn't breaking things. It's showing what's already broken, you know, and if you talk to caregivers or uh, people who are involved with this world, they're like, yeah, you know, things have always been not great. You know, there's always been understaffing. Uh, there's always been, uh, you know, variety of poor practices. It's just now everything's accelerated. And, you know, one of the frustrating things is now we're like, oh, my God, we really care. Ten people have died. How many people die at facilities because of varieties of neglect on a regular basis? You know, it you know, it's it's a pretty regular like neglect and abuse definitely happens and we don't talk or think about it all that much, uh, except for Fedor who spent multiple years researching and writing about <laughs> I was gonna it. Say, <laughs> some, some of us, some of us have devoted a lot of uh, time and attention uh, to reporting on the woes of the, uh, not just assisted living centers for, you know, healthy folks, but people experiencing mental illness. Uh, 
uh, people who are developmentally disabled, you're reporting for years on this topic. So I, it, you're pretty well aware of it. So it must be frustrating. <laughs> I can sense a little frustration in in uh, in your your voice there that you know these have always been issues that we haven't paid enough attention to. You know, it, yeah, because you know it feels. I mean, it's all of it is incredibly tragic, and it almost feels like, yep, yeah. Are you surprised? Like, yeah. Welcome to this party of tragedy. We've been waiting for you. How did you find the families you you spoke to for um, your most recent story about Foster Creek? Uh, how did you find those folks? They, they all they all reached out uh, and you know talked to them over the course of a few days. You know, one of the people. Uh, the stories about the gentleman, he actually passed away the day the story ran, you know, and I'd been talking to that family for a few days, you know, in the morning of the day the story ran, I was like, you know, I talked to his girlfriend and she was like, Fedor, you know, like I was fact checking with her, you know, She's like Fedor, I'm like, you know, Al's gonna, I think Al's gonna pass away today, you know, like it's very real. It's happening right now. You know, it's happening right now and it's really tragic and it's really it's like a lot to process really just because to be so directly involved with people's immediate present tragedies uh, is definitely in a different experience for me with this like, like this. So how do you compartmentalize that or hope with that? I mean, your, your family's not here in Portland. They're in the, you're, you're, you know, by yourself. I mean, I, even if we have family here in Portland, we're all by ourselves these days, but how are you, uh, coping with, with that weight? Uh, you know, I talk to family back in Moscow pretty regularly, but they're getting kind of mad at me for actually not calling that often. And I've been gearing up to be like, okay, look, mom, look, grandma, grandpa, everybody else. Like this is a, there's a reason I'm busy, right? Like like, there's a reason I'm busy. Okay, I'm not just, like, ignoring you guys. What precautions are you taking on the job, and how has that changed from today versus back in Lebanon, you know, more than a month ago at this point? Well, well the main way it's changed is that I'm barely leaving my apartment, right? And, um, you know, I've always been keeping distance. You know, I didn't always have a mask because I just literally didn't have one. Gradually, I think like all of us, or maybe like all of us, maybe not, it's just with every day, the reality of the thing just sinks in more and more and you get more, more and more kind of wary of everything. Uh, it's really a day by day kind of thing. Do you have a sense of, um, are there more Foster Creeks out there? Well, I mean, we've got a list of all nursing homes and assisted living facilities that have at least one death and there there are others there are definitely others and it very well could grow so yeah i know there definitely are well thanks for everything you're doing out there um or in there i guess in your apartment um but um thanks for your reporting and uh, stay safe thank you for your podcasting andrew it's been uh, it's been great it's been a pleasure to listen to so i appreciate that Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I posted links to five of Fedor's essential stories in the episode notes. If you like what we're doing with this podcast, please leave us a rating or review in iTunes. It helps others find the show. Until next time.